0: Welcome to the Jazz Notes Podcast. I'm Ben Anderson. I'm Chandler Holt. We are recording this on February 6th, 48 hours ahead of the NBA trade deadline. Appreciate you following us as always on Twitter at Ben's Hoops at Chandler Holt KSL, reading us at KSLsports.com. Also KSL Sports, you can find us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, of course threads wherever you uh, want your sports coverage, you can get it at kslsports.com and at those social media outlets. All right. uh, As we always do, we're going to recap the week that was for the Utah Jazz. We'll look at the week coming up, including a a lot of trade deadline talk. We will uh, give our uh, grades on uh, what happened over the last week for the Utah Jazz and we will answer your mailbag questions, and there are a handful today. So uh, excited to do that. The Jazz go one and two this week. They fall to the New uh, New York Knicks. They got crushed. It was only 15, but it fell a lot bigger than that. They had what I described as their worst loss of the season to the Philadelphia 76ers. Maybe that was a little bit of an overreaction, but we can talk about it. And then uh, a pretty impressive come-from-behind victory over the Milwaukee where they trailed by 14 in the fourth quarter and won by 15, which is a very rare occurrence. I bet you that happens. Maybe once every two or three seasons by any team. You know, that's a very rare occurrence to blow a 14-point lead and then get blown out the way the uh, Milwaukee Bucks did. But the Jazz salvaged what would have otherwise been a dreadful, dreadful week with that fourth-quarter performance.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a tough week as we previewed uh, on our last episode. But even though the New York Knicks and Philadelphia are a good team, and Philadelphia is a good team even without Embiid, like you said, two pretty bad losses there. Uh, the Jazz shot 45% against the Knicks, and they had 15 to six turnovers, 22 to eight points off turnovers, and then they lose by 15. So that's the difference right there. Um, and then Philadelphia, Tyrese Maxey drops 51 points. Surprisingly, the Jazz actually shot 52% from the floor, pretty good. Um, but 76ers were three and nine without Embiid ahead of the Jazz game.
0: No, the Jazz shouldn't have ever lost that game. I mean, I stand by and I tweeted it out after and got a bunch of reaction that I thought that was a season-changing loss for the Jazz, and I'm still not ready to back off of it because Milwaukee ran out of gas in the fourth quarter on the second night of a back-to-back in Salt Lake City without their starting center in Brook Lopez, and the Jazz went full Hail Mary mode. Will Hardy played one lineup for 12 straight minutes, and it worked. Now, good for the Jazz. It worked. And maybe that's enough to stop the bleeding. That's my question mark, and we will get to know better tonight. When they play the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, and then what they do over the next week, where they've got some huge games going into the All Star weekend. But I, I'm not, I'm still not ready to back off that that Philadelphia loss was really bad and felt like it shook the foundation. Now, look, there are foundation shaking losses that are good. Like the Jazz lose to the Portland Trailblazers in early December, and Will Hardy says, if you're not going to pass, if you're not going to play defense, you're not going to play for the Utah Jazz, and within a week they start winning you know, 15 out of 19 games. Sometimes bad losses or foundation-shaking losses can be a benefit, and I will be curious how the Jazz respond to that Philadelphia loss. But, yeah, you give a 51 to a guy who's the only real weapon on the team. It wasn't like they were only missing Joel Embiid. They were missing a lot of bodies, uh, and they just got torched. They just got torched, and they never really found a way to put it together. And they played with fire, and they got burnt. So uh, we will see if there's any more continued fallout. And, uh, you know, as we've talked about, no easy games here the rest of the way. I mean, Oklahoma City tonight's brutal. Uh, Phoenix on the road. Phoenix is playing very well lately. They've been much better. And then you come back home with three games that could define whether or not you make the play-in tournament. You've got uh, two against the Warriors and one against the Lakers, and you're fighting with both of them to try and make it. So uh, anyways— Okay week, not a great week, but uh, certainly much better because they pulled it out against Milwaukee. Yeah, I was
1: about to say, after a terrible loss like that one in Phil- or against Philadelphia, um, they had a good bounce back. In the fourth quarter, they outscored them 40-13. to 13. I think it might have been the best quarter of the season, right? Like you said, they stuck with one lineup for the whole time, and of course it was working, so they continue to stick with it. Um, but let's talk about the month of February. I think that the month of February could be really big for the Jazz. Right now they're 1-1. One um, and they're 25 and 26 overall 10th in the West. They're one game from falling back to 11th and 12th and they're one and a half games from ninth. So for the first time in a while, they're closer to falling down than they are to rising up. Um, and if you look at this, this February schedule before all-star weekend, you have Oklahoma city, Phoenix, golden state twice. And the Lakers, those two games, against golden state could be huge for the standings. Cause the, the warriors are in 12th right now. And like I said, the jazz are only one game ahead of them. So if you can go two and zero against the warriors, um, that could be big. You know, like you could push them lower down in the standings and have the tiebreaker if they end up having a similar record at the end of the year. And then after the all star break, you have Charlotte, San Antonio, Atlanta, and Orlando.
0: Yeah. Winnable games. Yes. Very. All winnable games. And we'll see what Atlanta does at the trade deadline with DeJounte and some of those questions. And Orlando Orlando's doing very similar to what the Jazz did last year. Like they burst out of the gate and were awesome. And they've just slowly, slowly, slowly fallen back to earth. And they're good. They're still very competitive, uh, but they are not what they were to start the season is probably time to step back and, you know, kind of get a better understanding of, of what they actually are and who they've been over the last month and a half versus what they were their first four weeks, five weeks of the season. Uh, let, let me ask you this question. There's 31 games left in the season for the Jazz. As you talked about, they are two and a half games back of the Mavericks for the eighth seed. They're four games, four and a half games back of the Suns and the Pelicans for the sixth and the seventh seed. Is it? Safe now to like say that those teams are too far away from the Jazz, that they can't catch the sixth and the seventh seed anymore, that they're four and a half games back.
1: Honestly, yes. I would say that getting into the top six is without a doubt out of the question. And then like eight seed, you're only two and a half games back, but I feel like you can trust that the Mavericks are gonna have a better record over the last thirty games than the Jazz will.
0: Probably. Maybe. But but I, I guess eighth would be like best case scenario yeah. for the Jazz before the end of the year. Yeah, Which is like you're still in the play in tournament. True. And I think that's really important to remember with the trade deadline 48 hours away, that if, as much as you can kind of, like, you know, you get this fourth quarter against Milwaukee, and you're like, well, this team is interesting. It's like, best case scenario is the Jazz are starting the play-in tournament on the road in a play-in game. You know, like, you have to go and win over the, this would be the Pelicans. Like, the Mavericks are going to have to go beat the Pelicans on the road or lose and then beat whoever comes out of the 9-10 matchup. Yep. So... It's not like a super optimistic outlook, in all honesty. This idea that you're going to totally shift everything around in your season to try and set yourself up to win one road game <laughs> in, in April is a little bit weird. And then on the flip side of that, obviously they won't fall past the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies are six and a half games back of the Jazz in the standings. There's no way the Grizzlies catch the Jazz before the end of the year. So the worst the Jazz could fall is 12. Like, that's actually not—there's not not that much the Jazz are playing for. Yeah. And I hate to, you know, deflate this inner tube that is what keeps us alive because it's our jobs to talk about the Jazz. But, like, best-case scenario is eighth. Worst-case scenario is 12th. It's not that rosy of an outlook the rest of the year. So the Jazz can really do whatever they want at the trade deadline. If you want to blow it up, fine. You're not going to fall further than 12th. And very realistically, you could fall to 12th even if you keep this thing together. Yep. Because you're only a game ahead of the Rockets and the Warriors. And— you miss a guy for a game against the Warriors, that's the you miss Lowry for a game because of a twisted ankle and that could determine your whole season. It's like that's how that's how fluky it is and how random it is at this point in the year and and how little the Jazz I think actually have to play for.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about some trade deadline stuff coming up, but funny enough, rumors are saying that the Jazz are more likely to buy than sell. Of course, we will see how that actually ends up turning out, but like you said, even if they buy, even if they sell, I feel like you're stuck in that 8 to 12 range, which is just not
0: you know, the nice thing is, four of those five spots get to play an 83rd game yep. this year. They get to play a play in tournament game. So that's beneficial. And I guess if that's what you're all in for, fine. I certainly don't think the Jazz are going to make any short term buys to try and improve just to make the 83rd game of the season. Yeah. It doesn't matter a whole lot. Uh, and then if you fall to 12th, it's probably not that big of a deal either.
1: Do you think that there are any uh, any things that could change, whether you get into the 8th seed to make the play in tournament or 12th, if we're talking about maybe conveying a pick to OKC or getting a higher lottery pick? The nice
0: thing is I think even if you get to 12th, you probably still convey your pick. Yep. That's where I think the Jazz actually are playing with house money is they have this top 10 protected pick that they owe to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And because it's a bad draft and you want to control all your own draft capital next year, the year after, because A, you can make the picks, or B, you can finally trade the picks now, which you can't do if you haven't conveyed them, uh, you want to convey this pick, even if you fall to 12th, I think there's a very realistic chance that there are three teams in the West and seven teams in the East that might still have a worse record than you. Now yeah. The problem is all these teams have a chance to make the playoffs. So maybe there is a benefit to finishing 11th or 10th and, and all the value is just to uh, – basically get a first-round pick back, even though the funny thing is you're conveying it. You lose a pick, you actually get your future future first-round picks back. So maybe that is the value of, of buying a little just to make sure you guarantee yourself, you know, the 11th seed or the 10th seed in the West and, and had a chance to uh, to get rid of that pick. Uh, really quick before the break,
1: hosting Oklahoma City uh, tonight in Phoenix on Thursday and then hosting the Warriors on Monday, what are we thinking?
0: Uh, I mean, I guess two wins would be... Really, a high level. I mean, the Jazz would feel like they had were doing a lot right. Yes, because you've either beat the number one is, or is uh, OKC the number one team in the West right now. They are so you either beat the number one team in the West or you go on the road and beat the Suns. Yep, and then you take care of business at home over the Warriors, which wouldn't be that surprising. Warriors are pretty dreadful, but yeah, that means you beat one of the two better teams, and the uh, the Suns are seven and three in their last ten games. We said they're they're surging, and yeah, OKC is tied with the Timberwolves atop the atop the West right now. Yeah, I would say 2-1. 2-1 would be really high. I'm betting 1-2. Okay. I think 1-2 is far more realistic. Uh, But you can beat Oklahoma City tonight. I mean, even in the game, the Jazz lost to Oklahoma City, their last one, right before they went on that six-game road trip. The Jazz were right there. They had a very good chance. They fell behind huge, battled back, tied it up in the third quarter, and then just didn't have enough gas to close it out. So, yeah, they'll have a chance to win this game tonight. 2-1 would be a... Good record for the Jazz. I'm, uh, like I said, predicting one and two. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about the weekly news at the Utah Jazz. We'll touch on some trade deadline stuff, give out our grades, and uh, answer the mailbag. Stick around. More Jazz Notes podcast coming up next. Welcome back to the Jazz Notes podcast. Ben Anderson, Chandler Holt. Thank you for subscribing and listening as always. And again, make sure you go to kslsports.com or in basically every article we put out, there's a link to sign up for the Jazz Notes newsletter that we send out every Tuesday, your chance to get uh, exclusive and early access to our content about the Utah Jazz. All right, uh, weekly news. Anything interesting uh, of note for the Jazz? Yeah, as
1: we previewed uh, last week, Larry Markkinen is not going to be an all-star for the second straight year, but he still will be making an appearance in Indiana as he will be in the three-point contest. Um, I saw a funny tweet that was uh, he
0: would win it if people were passing it to him instead of pulling it off the rack. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> he's a really great catch-and-shoot player. I wonder if that's something you could do. It's like, right. you know, in the home run derby, you don't hit it off a tee, yeah. or you don't have to throw the ball up to yourself and then <laughs> hit it. Like, you have someone pitching it to you. Should you be past the ball? Should that be an option? Yeah. It would might, might take a little bit more time, or maybe it would speed it up. But I would that might be a change I would make. That's I like a that. good change to the All Star Weekend. Like, what would you do to make it more interesting? And it's the subtle tweak. It's like, yeah. yeah, let a guy pass you the ball if you'd prefer to have a you know your teammate come out there and throw it to you. The way in the dunk contest, you can have somebody come in and throw you lobs and stuff. Yeah, you can do that. So uh, that was that is a good tweet. I wish I had it pulled up because we could give it credit to him. But uh, yeah, I don't think Lowry's gonna win. Yeah, uh, but that'll be a fun. That'll be a fun thing. I applaud Lowry for being a part of things. Definitely. I think sometimes, specifically with European players, it's hard to find your culture in the NBA. Like, I, again, I don't think people realize there is still a pretty significant language barrier with Lowry Markkinen, and you don't recognize it because he speaks so well. But like the other day in the locker room, uh, I think Eric Walden said the word rigid, and he didn't know what that word meant. And like, that's not a crazy, complex word, that. Yeah. but it's just not a word he's used. So it's like it's even that far, like there are still issues where he probably doesn't quite feel super comfortable the way anyone would normally with a language barrier. Uh, So good for him for saying, yeah, I'll go be a part of that. That's awesome. And uh, that is a fun thing. So uh, good for Lowry. And as expected, uh,
1: Kessler and Keontae George are both going to be in the Rising Stars game.
0: Yeah. Uh, No other uh, skills, participation or anything. Now the Jazz were so well represented last year because it was here in Salt Lake City that uh, I don't blame them for letting everybody back out and, yeah. and take the weekend off. And who knows who's even going to be on the roster. So assigning guys right now to be uh, in these skills challenges and things like that is, is a lot of work. You know, I I guess you probably could have put, like, Keontae Jordan in the skills challenge. He's just not a big enough name yet. Yeah. You know, Darren Williams, I think, did it his rookie year with Chris Paul, and I think Darren Williams won. Uh, they were, like, big-time names. Keontae's not quite there yet. You can get other players with bigger rookie names, like Chet Holmgren or Victor to do uh, the skills challenge and people like that because... The freak show is, is that they're both seven feet tall and yes. have all these crazy skills. Uh, the three-point contest, by the way, is a Tyrese Halliburton, Malik Beasley, Jalen Brunson, Lowry, Damian Lillard, and I think Donovan Mitchell is now a part of it. Nice. That'll be fun to watch. All right. Next up, let's get into some trade deadline stuff.
1: I have a uh, group of rumors here, uh, all centered around the Jazz, and we can sort of just give our thoughts on them and also t- maybe talk about how realistic they oh, are. Oh,
0: I love trade rumors. Let's <laughs> talk about it.
1: Uh, first up, this is the biggest one surrounding the Jazz, uh, Jordan Clarkson and the Knicks.
0: I have said this. Maybe I said it even last week. I I love basketball. Like, I do. I love the NBA specifically. I love the showmanship of it. I love the great buildings. The Knicks have the great building in the NBA, in my opinion. I think Madison Square Garden is mecca. I totally buy into the lore of it. I love it. And I think Jordan Clarkson is a top 20 showman in the NBA right now. And unfortunately, because he was on those weird end-of-his-career Kobe teams and then got buried on the Cavaliers teams with LeBron— People don't realize how, like, fun to watch Jordan Clarks is, is night in and night out. And because people don't watch a lot of jazz games, that gets overlooked. But Jordan is one of the more exciting players in the NBA. And that doesn't mean he's one of the top 20 best players in the league. But his highs, his lows, his the way he plays, his style of basketball is really, really exciting and really fun. And he would be so cool to watch at, at Madison Square Garden. So... Uh, I also would welcome a Jordan Clarkson trade, not as somebody who covers Jordan Clarkson, but as a fan of the NBA. I think that would be really a, an enjoyable thing to watch. And, uh, you know, I don't know what Jordan's ties are to the New York exactly. I remember him going and doing the water balloon fight randomly in uh, in Central Park one time. He just kind of showed up. So clearly he knows the area. He's been there for fashion shows and stuff. So I think that would be a fun matchup as a basketball fan. But uh, I've quite enjoyed covering Jordan Clarkson locally and getting to know him the little bit that uh, reporters get to know the players. So I-, I can see it, and you know what? I honestly think the uh, the trade to get Quentin Grimes would make a lot of sense. Yeah, that's Qu- the big name that people see coming back to Qu- Utah. Quentin Grimes makes a ton of sense for the Jazz as a stylistically, there's almost no overlap with he. And Keontae George or Colin Sexton or Taylor Horton Tucker, he's much more of a true floor spacer. He's a really good point of attack defender, which the Jazz do not have as much as a guy like Colin Sexton really tries. He doesn't. He's not six foot five, the way that Quentin Grimes is six foot five. He's just a he's a he's a load to get around. He's just a really big body who spaces the floor, doesn't dribble a lot. It's just kind of a straight line driver. So he's not trying to twist it out of your shoes, which a lot of the Jazz players seem to do in the backcourt. Uh, so I think. The skill set of Quentin Grimes makes a lot of sense with the Jazz, so I, I get why there's been interest with the Knicks trade for the Jazz. and Also, they could use another score. They could probably use it. The Knicks could use a guy with more wiggle, yeah. and the Jazz just are overflowing with them. Uh Next up, we
1: don't actually have a team for this guy, uh, like for the other rumors, but uh, according to Zach Lowe, Simone
0: Fontecchio is drawing some trade interest. Let me reframe this a little bit in this, not this question of, you know, are the Jazz good trade Simone Fontecchio, but would you consider this – Selling high right now on Simone Fontecchio if you traded him at this moment. And which is what a lot of teams try and do. You yeah. you sell guys at the high uh, of their value if you don't think that's who they are. If you don't think Simone's going to get better, would you think this is a, an example of the Jazz selling high if they were to trade Simone?
1: Honestly, I think absolutely yes it is. Because at the beginning of the year, we were talking about if Simone is even going to be able to stay in the lineup. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about how he did great with Italy in the FIBA World Cup, and can he? Sort of go back to being a role player and find some success. And he has. He started for the majority of the games so far this year. Um,
0: so I think that definitely would be selling high. Uh, Simone's best month with the Jazz so far this season came in December when everybody was playing well. He shot 44% from the floor, 39% from three, but most notably, he averaged 10.4 uh, points per game. In January, he dropped a little bit. His shooting percentages actually improved but his uh, points per game dropped from 10.4 to 9.8, and then in two games in February, which is much too small of a sample size to read into anything, he's, uh, he's at nine points a game and four rebounds. It feels like he's not quite as impactful right now and over the last month as he was in December. Like yeah. It felt like we were talking a lot about Simone Fontecchio, like, man, is this guy a part of the core going forward? Like, Is this one of the guys that you're going to say is an answer? And may- he very well maybe. be. Uh, but yeah, at 28 years old... Uh, he's not right in the Jazz wheelhouse as far as their time frames go. He's playing well. I mean, he's shooting 40% from three for the season, 39.4. Yeah, if you sell now, maybe this is the time to sell high. And if this is a guy who costs you basically nothing, and if you don't think you're going to pay him in the offseason uh, with you know part of your mid-level exception, maybe you do sell high on him. Yeah, that would make some sense. And because he plays hard defensively and does shoot well and has good NBA size and has quite a bit of basketball experience in his back pocket, a lot of teams could use him.
1: I was about to ask do you think that there is any contenders or at least people who are looking to make a deep playoff run that would
0: be interested in Simone or do you think it would just be a middle of the pack or rebuilding team No I think you want I think that's a, a move for a team that wants to win a title mm-hmm. and thinks like man we got to win on the edges like we don't have the ability to make these home run swings so we've got to upgrade our eighth guy or our ninth guy yeah. and see if that guy comes in like and I'm not saying this is the team at all but like can you imagine Simone Fontecchio running off of Nikola Jokic and, like, Nikola finding him for open threes, yeah. like how much easier life would be for Simone. Like, that's, again, the problem with the Jazz is, other than Kelly Olynyk, they don't have a lot of great passers in the front court, but these bigs that can really pass the ball would would make Simone's life a lot easier. So you're just looking for another guy to hit shots and run around and not lose the game for you in six minutes in a playoff game. I think Simone might be in that group. So, no, uh, uh, a mid-level team a la the... Houston Rockets probably can't use Simone Fontecchio, mm-hmm. but a team that thinks they have a realistic shot of winning a title this year probably could. Uh,
1: next up, a couple rumors surrounding Kelly Olynyk, who most people see as most available, hottest commodity for the Jazz. Uh, funny enough, two of his former teams, Boston and Miami, are rumored to be interested in him. And I was looking at the contracts. Um, For the Celtics, the if uh, this is assuming you're doing like a one for one kind of deal and not throwing in like a group of Uh like ninth to thirteenth men on the roster, the closest contract to Kelly Linux twelve million is Al Horford at ten million, and I don't think that the Celtics would be very interested in that. Um, And then looking at Miami, they're in a a very similar situation because when you're looking around that twelve million, it's it's Duncan Robinson at eighteen, and
0: then it falls all the way down to Caleb Martin at six million. Uh, I. Those are two teams that make a ton of sense for Kelly, and I'm with you. I don't know exactly how they get the deal done. Yeah. Like, Duncan Robinson is probably better than Kelly Olenek right now. And I know that, like, a year ago, Duncan Robinson was, like, the most untradeable contract in the NBA. And he's bounced back, and he's, like, he's playing really well. Yeah. And I know that they're flawed, but he's averaging 13 points, shooting 40% from three again, 45% from the uh, from the floor. Like He's kind of back to being the guy he was in this big drop-off that he had last season where he's only shooting 32% from three was a blip. He's doubled his scoring average from last season. He makes life easier for everybody because he's willing to shoot seven threes a game. And you can love Kelly Olenek in 15 minutes, but he can't get up seven threes. And for a team like Miami that needs somebody to do that, Duncan Robinson has a ton of value. So I don't see that as a one-for-one one either necessarily for a backup big guy. Uh, in Kelly Olynyk. So, yeah, again, we've we've talked about it a lot. I'm not patting myself on the back. Like every good team in the NBA should want Kelly Olynyk. Yep. Uh he's also quite a bit different than Al Horford. You know, like yeah. he does some similar things and they're both okay passers. I mean, Kelly's a better passer. Uh I think Al Horford's a much better defensive much player and rebounder fan. and kind of has that history of of being in those roles. He's a lot older. I mean, Al Horford's 37. Yeah. And Kelly's only 32, so maybe you could get a long-term run there, but yeah, I, I think those teams both make sense, and I don't know how it does. I, I would also say the Knicks make a lot of sense for Kelly mm-hmm. just because they're down. Mitchell Robinson and Julius Randle can use another big guy. And maybe Julius, uh, or excuse me, maybe Joel Embiid's injury actually puts them a little bit more in the running to try and get a big guy who can just eat minutes, yeah. which is really valuable for a team that's trying to stay afloat if uh, if Joel can come back in the next month or two. Uh,
1: back to Miami. Um, I just tried this Duncan Robinson for Kelly Olenek and Simone Works, and then I'm assuming there would be maybe a couple second-round picks or something thrown in there from the Miami Heat.
0: Yeah. That makes more sense. Yes. I could see that making more sense because, yes, Simone is the type of guy who you say, well, he'll take three threes a game and Kelly takes three. And in the aggregate, you've replaced Duncan Robinson. And then you get a little bit financial freedom after the season when they, they both come off the books.
1: Yes. All right. Uh, last up here. Um, and we also have a mailbag question later. So this will tie into that. Um, according to Yahoo Sports' Jake Fisher, Lakers and the Jazz are the only teams to give actual offers on DeJounte Murray. Quotes there
0: on actual offers because I'm not entirely sure what that may mean. Uh, yeah, that might have been specifics. Like, yeah. everyone called and said, what's the cost? And they're like, well, it's two first-round picks and a good young player. Yep. And then salary match. And the Jazz have that. Jazz could easily do that. Jazz could match the salaries relatively easily. What does he make, $25 million a year? Mm-hmm. I think DeJounte does. So you could do, you know, any number of combination of your $12 million players or your one million player. In this case, it would be Jordan Clarkson and, you know, a young guy. And then you throw in picks. Jazz could legitimately do that. And so that might be what an actual offer is, meaning there were actually names filled into those those placeholders. But, you know, how seriously are the Jazz chasing DeJounte Murray? It has been interesting that that's been the spot that it seems like most consistently the Jazz have been involved in rumors. You mm-hmm. know, like, they were rumored to be really interested in Drew Holiday, kind of out of nowhere. And before Drew Holiday, they had made an offer for Damian Lillard, apparently. Like, there is backcourt help that uh, Danny Ainge and Justin Zanuck have been Knocking the door on, at least sniffing around to
1: see what's available. Yeah, let's jump the gun on this one mailbag question. We'll get to the rest later. Uh, Denny B. Karchner asks Would DeJounte Murray be a good fit with Keontae? I have something for this. First of all, they have similar body types DeJounte's mm-hmm. 6'5", 180 and Keontae's 6'4", 185. And also, I was talking about this um, a while ago when we were talking about we had a mailbag question asking if the Mike Conley trade was bad in retrospect. And I said, of course, having Mike Conley now ahead of a guard like Keontae would be great because you can you can learn a lot of things from a veteran point guard, you know, like IQ. Of course, I'm not saying DeJounte Murray is anywhere near as high of an IQ basketball player as Mike Conley is. Right. But still, DeJounte Murray is a solid defender, and I think that there could be a lot of things that you could learn there.
0: But like we talked about, DeJounte may be a glorified Colin Sexton. And he, he I do think he's better than Colin Sexton. Yes, I want to make that clear. I've been watching a lot of— Dejounte randomly. There's a lot of Hawks games on, and I'm always curious because of the Quinn Snyder co- connection. Dejounte is really good. Yeah, like his ability to create good shots, like good mid-range shots. Which I know some people roll their eyes. There's no such thing as a good mid-range shot. Like when there's four seconds left in the game and you need a game winner, and he hit back-to-back game winners in Orlando and Miami. Like he's a guy you can give the ball to, and he's gonna create not just a shot, but a really good shot for himself late in the game. Which I'm not quite sure Colin Sexton is there because of his body type. Yeah. That's the only reason why. That so you're right, DeJounte is six foot five and Colin's six foot one. And those four inches at the end of the game really matter. And then you look at how well DeJounte has improved his three point shooting and how willing he is to take it. He's really, really good. Yeah. He's not this defensive superstar I think a lot of people have assigned to him, but DeJounte's a really good basketball player and would be good in Utah and will be good wherever he lands if he's not in Atlanta any longer. Um so I, w- I want to clarify that. I think we've talked a little bit, like, comparing he and Colin Sexton. And Colin's great, but I think there's a reason the Jazz continue to sniff around about these these other guards that are out there. And, and you know, does he fit next to Keontae George? I think that's a very difficult question yeah. because I like I like DeJounte on the ball. I also kind of like Keontae on the ball, and the Jazz got to figure out, you know, do they think Keontae's better as a two or better as a one? Yeah. They talk a lot about him being a one. They talk a lot about him being a lead guard with the ball in his hands. And I know there's room to do more in the NBA than just having the traditional point guard like we used to in the league I grew up watching. I know that has changed and evolved. But uh, I think sometimes you can lose a little bit of of what they offer when uh, you take the ball out of certain guys' hands. Anyways,
1: moving on. Yes, do you want to get into the Jazz grades? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Uh, So every week we rate the Jazz in the past week on veteran performance, young players, standings, and fun factor. One and two week pretty decent win over Milwaukee and then a couple of bad losses what about the veterans
0: veterans for the Jazz over the last three games again Larry markinen has been a little bit down in all honesty and mm-hmm. it's funny when in his downs uh, week he's averaging 21 and 6 and shooting 52 40 and 100 percent from the free throw <laughs> line so yeah Larry's down week is well you're only a good all-star you're not a great all-star so I'm not going to uh, hammer him for that. Colin, again feels like he's a little bit down, and again he's averaged 21 points, five assists, shooting 50, 46, and 89. So statistically, I didn't think there was a big drop off, but again there were moments where I thought the Jazz needed to step up and like outplay a Joel Embiid-less uh, Philadelphia 76ers, and they didn't. So I'll give him a B minus. B minus. I think that's fair. Uh,
1: John Collins had a pretty painstakingly average week. Um, and then same thing with Chris Dunn. So, yeah, I think a C-plus, B-minus is probably right for that. John
0: Collins' three-point shooting has completely disappeared. Yeah. He's really struggled, uh, as did Jordan Clarkson. I think Jordan Clarkson, looking at it here, he shot 12% from three for the week. So, yeah, the top players, Colin Sexton and Larry Markden were good, and I think everyone else was was pretty average. All right, the young guys. I thought Walker and Keontae George were the Jazz's best players against Milwaukee. Now, you could say it was Lowry, and without Lowry, the Jazz don't win that game. That's absolutely true. And without getting four assists from uh, Jordan Clarkson in the fourth quarter, the Jazz don't win that game. And without Colin Sexton kind of being a maniac and firing up the team by trying to fight Giannis Antetokounmpo (laughs) and drawing the ire of Malik Beasley, you don't win that game. But in the fourth quarter... Walker was the difference maker defensively and really made life hard for the Bucks. And then Keontae just hit a bunch of big shots and brought a bunch of energy. And quietly, after having a miserable stretch, Keontae had had a really bad stretch where he had six made shots in five games, which is terrible. He's been really good. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, uh, Keontae George, his last three games, this excludes really the four that he's played well in, but his last three games, shooting 53% from the floor, 39% from three, 100% from the free throw line. He's averaging... 15-5-2, like honestly, this might be the best week of his career as far as uh, averages go, efficiency, and then was the best player in the fourth quarter or was a I mean, maybe number two best player in the fourth quarter of a game that also featured Giannis DeCumpo and Damian Lillard. So I, I will give them a little bit more of a generous grade. I'll give them a B.
1: I agree. And also, who could have predicted that Keontae George's first career double-double would be with rebounds?
0: Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I, I was shocked when they said that because I was like, no, he's had double-digit assists quite a few times. He's had 11 assists three times and had seven points in every single one of those games. Wow. Yeah, has never never been able to score when he did that. So uh, maybe a, a future triple-double in on the horizon for Keontae George if he's showing his ability to rebound. I love guards who rebound. I, I know I talk too much about people rebounding on this, but you got to rebound. you got to do your job. you got to end the possession. If the ball is close to you, go get it. And uh, Keontae George did that, and a lot of those rebounds were important. So yeah, young guys outside B, maybe even a B plus. But yeah, well, let's go B plus. I'm fine with that. Cool. Yeah, I, and uh, yeah, man, Walker's he's really good. Walker yeah. Kessler's a really good basketball player. He really helps your team win when he's on the floor. And he's crazy. He's doing this in 19 minutes. He averaged a nine points, seven point three rebounds, and three point seven blocks. Doesn't even play 20 minutes a night. It's like Mark Eaton type of stuff. You know, those crazy production and and not on the floor very long.
1: Uh, next up, standings. Uh, like we talked about, the Jazz are in the 10 seed, game and a half from the 9 seed, and only one game from the 12 seed. Um, one and two week. Granted, it, it was against some good teams, but 76ers game, you probably should have won without Embiid.
0: If you were 2-1, and one, I think I would have given them a B plus. If they mm-hmm. were 0-3, we would have said F. Yep. So I'm okay kind of splitting the difference and say it was a C. C? Yeah, I think it was a C. The nice thing is they did not get overtaken. They lost a little bit of connection with the Lakers. Uh, like we said, they're a game and a half back now, and they were tied for a lot of the week. I think going into the week they were tied, uh, and the Lakers have won three straight. But they didn't allow the Rockets to close the gap because yep. the Rockets lost some games as well and are four and six in their last ten. Uh, so the Jazz were able to hold off the Rockets. So, yeah, I'll give them a C. And then next up,
1: fun factor. I think this one could be a little bit rough. The next game there wasn't a lot of fun stuff going on there.
0: Um Wanted anything fun about the 76ers game? Yeah. you are just kind of waiting for them to turn it on, and then really, it was only the fourth, the fourth quarter, quarter that was fun. But wins are more fun. You got one. I'd say C minus. C minus. I think that's perfect. Yeah, maybe D plus. But yeah, I'll go with C minus. That's fine. You won the game. You had to, and it was a great fourth quarter. Yeah. it was a maybe one of the ten most memorable moments of the season. Was that yeah. fourth quarter performance? By the end of the year, we'll look back and say, oh, that was a that was enjoyable to watch. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm fine with that. All right, let's get into the mailbag. Um,
1: First up from Alex. Is there any statistics that back up the notion that role players play worse near the trade deadline due to uncertainty as has been suggested on some podcasts in the last couple weeks?
0: I have not seen that, nor have I heard on the podcast, so I apologize. Here's what I will say, and this is what has really shocked me about covering the NBA. And one of the things I've really had to like adapt and understand is that like the human aspect of all of it is so relevant. And it's not that just like, well, these guys are role players and they get to the, the... Trade deadline, and they get nervous, and so they start playing poorly. That is a part of it. I suspect that truly happens. But also, this is the longest stretch of basketball in the year that anyone played. You've played 50 games without a break. And now the league's trying to mix in a little bit with, like, the play-in tournament. You get three or four days off here. They're trying to mix in these little breaks. But I just think everybody is running on fumes. Yep. And you've got to get that all-star break to have a week off to just recharge your batteries. So I think it has more to do with just— the elite players are are just so much better than the average players in the NBA. And I do think that is still a huge gap. We probably don't talk about it enough. The elite players are so much better than the average players that their numbers never really drop off all that dramatically. And the average players, when they're running on fumes at the end of this run, and then you mix in the trade deadline, and then you mix in – I've worked on a Friday when I know I'm going on vacation on Saturday. Like I know the effort I put in changes. I think they're in that same spot where they just like they see the finish line that is the all star break. Their effort wanes, their interest wanes, and they're exhausted. I think that probably has more to do with it than they're nervous about the trade deadline. It's yeah. part of it, but that might be a smaller part than just the, the actual wear and tear. Uh next
1: up from Jeremy Schaefer. Uh what are your thoughts on the scoring spike in the NBA this year?
0: I think bigger players are better than ever. And like, it's amazing. I was watching the Bucs game on Sunday, and I was just kind of going through Giannis's stats. Like, off the top of your head—and and we can go back because you've been an NBA fan a long time. Like, the best big guys in the NBA going back six years—let's go, let's go back 15 years. Like, what would you expect them to average? Like, I bet if you were to go back and pull up Patrick Ewing's assists for his career, David Robinson assists for their career, like, I bet you it's three per game. And I'm just doing this off the top of my head. So let me look it up. Look, Who are you pulling up? Patrick Ewing? Uh, no, I'm, I'm looking at the 2009 NBA stat leaders. Okay. I will pull up Patrick Ewing. Never averaged more than 2.7 assists per game. And Patrick wasn't a necessarily great reba- or passer, but big guys were not expected to pass a whole lot. I was looking at the Bucs game. Here, I'll pull up by uh, David Robinson. David Robinson's career high in assists in a game was 4.8, which is pretty high. That's a, That's a really good number. He was a really high-level player. Uh, Giannis, like, do we you consider Giannis one of the elite passing big men's in the big men in the NBA? I don't feel like we talk about him. I certainly don't think about it. Yeah. When I think of elite passers in the league, I think of Joel. I think of Jokic. Obviously, might be the greatest passing big man of all time. Demonis Sabonis, Alper and Shingun, like these guys who are known for their passing. Giannis averages a seven assists per game. Like, he's like six point eight. It's crazy how good of a passer Giannis is. And not just because he draws four guys when he he drives to the rim and kicks the ball out. Like, he gets back to the basket and throws the ball to the weak side for three-point shooters for pinpoint passes somewhat regularly. He's a great passer. Yeah. So I think my point of this argument is, the skill set of the big guys in the NBA is so much better than it has been that it has opened up these three-point shooters. The three-point shooting has obviously fixed this, but it's really the big guys taking advantage of how good they are now and surrounded by this kind of five-out style of play. That's been the combination, the, the three-point revolution, but the talent of the big men within that three-point revolution, including some of them who shoot threes and some of them who don't. And by the way, you would be stunned at how few threes Jokic shoots a game. I think a lot of people assume he's like stepping out four times a game. Like, I, I, let me pull it up. I bet he doesn't average two three point attempts a game. Yeah. That's how good he is. He's shooting, uh, okay, 2.9, a little bit higher than I thought, but not six, not yeah. seven, the way we kind of think of these, these big guys who step out and shoot threes. He, he makes one a game. Last year he was at 2.2. He's the best player on the planet. 2.2 three point attempts a game. It, it's, exploiting the three-point shooting without being three-point shooters. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, I
1: think that there's just more talent in the NBA than there has ever been before. In 2009, there were 16 players who averaged 20 or more points. This year, uh, <laughs> that number's at
0: 48. Yeah, right. Every team not has one, they have two. Yes. Every team has two players that average 20 points a game, it yep. feels like. Uh, and now, if you want to argue whether or not that's good for the NBA or not, I would listen to that. Yes. I, I actually don't love these crazy high-scoring performances. And yeah. I'm not trying to be not fun— but, like, yeah, Tyrese Maxey rolls into Salt Lake and scores 51. It's like there is a thing where, like, 60 is the new 50, or maybe yeah. even 70 is the new 50 where there were not a lot of 50-point games when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And I don't want games to go back to 94, 83 to be the final score. That's boring. Like, you go back and you watch old basketball. It's not that exciting. I love how skilled the players are. I would welcome some defensive changes that improve the NBA. Yeah. Like, the, I might get rid of defensive three seconds altogether. Um, and if, if you just, want to like, park Walker Kessler at the rim, fine. Yeah. If – Another team says, okay, well, if you're going to park him down there, we'll just shoot threes around him. Like, that's our, that's the card we're going to play against it. Also fine. But if Walker Kessler wants to sit in the paint and just block layups all game long, good, enable the big man again to to be able to play that role. I heard an interesting conversation. I don't know if I can say if it was with who, so I just won't. But that NBA needs to get rid of fouls 15 feet, 18 feet away from the basket because no one shoots there anymore right now. And that doesn't mean don't call and It doesn't mean it's a free-for-all and you just get to hammer guys there. But, like, The number of calls that get whistled when a guy puts his body on somebody at 18 feet, when nobody's shooting jump shots there anymore, we only shoot layups and three-point shots. Like Maybe we need to legislate that a little bit differently and officiate that a lot differently. We're just being like, we're going to let you get away with a lot more contact. And if you can get past your guy, we'll officiate you at the rim still very sensitively. Or if you're stepping under a guy at the three-point line. But that mid-range shot that is basically dead in the NBA, we still protect it like it's a layup or a three-pointer, and that's kind of silly.
1: Yeah. Um, And I, I don't think that the scoring spike, I don't think it has to do with bad defense. I don't think that NBA teams are worse at defending than they were 15 years ago. I think that advanced analytics and other things have just led NBA teams to know what works. And that is the five out. That's how you score so many points, especially when you have players like Victor Wimbanyama or Kristaps Porzingis, who are big guys and they're not just down there looking for layups at the rim. Kind of a funny stat, the current day Detroit Pistons who have like six wins and we're 52 uh-huh. games into the year, they have a better offensive rating than the 2000 Lakers with Shaq and Kobe.
0: Yeah, right. So it's just, it's the, the game of basketball is always evolving. It's constantly evolving, which is what I love about it. You can't solve it. Yeah, that is fun. I like that nobody's ever solved it. And you have teams who go on runs and win four or five years and have these great players, but no one's ever solved it and said, well, we don't need to improve it anymore. You can always improve on it and tinker and change, and it will continue that way. So the scoring burst, I actually don't love it. I wish they would make defense a little bit easier. I would do things like I would put the goal, I would get rid of the goaltending rule, which is as soon as it's on the rim, I like the FIBA rule that you can block it. Like I like old school big guys. Yeah. I, I don't mind back-to-the-basket big guys, uh, and I think some of those things could still be beneficial.
1: Uh, next up, we got a couple questions from Jazz Time Jones. First up, do you see
0: Kelly Olynyk re-signing here this summer? If not, why keep him? Uh, I could see Kelly Olynyk. I mean, he did a shoot around this morning. I was doing my radio show, so I wasn't able to be there, but I saw some of the quotes, and he's like, he loves Utah. Yeah. So the Jazz, if if Kelly Olynyk doesn't re-sign in Utah, it's because the Jazz didn't re-sign Kelly Olynyk, mm-hmm. not because Kelly doesn't want to be in Utah. Yeah. I think legitimately, he likes it. Young married guy. I mean, not young, but he's not, you know, he's not ancient. But he's married. He's not 22 and trying to get out on the town. He's a 30-year-old married Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think Utah probably works for Kelly. So I don't think he's necessarily dying to get out of Utah. So, no, you don't have to trade Kelly because you're afraid of losing him in the summer. Now, if he's going to cost so much money that it could make it difficult eventually to restructure Larry Markin's contract, or you want to do something else in the offseason with some of that money— I could see that being an issue and why you trade Kelly and why I think Kelly still remains the most likely jazz player to get traded. Uh, but no, the jazz don't trade him out of fear of not being able to re-sign him. Yeah. To simplify that question. Uh, another one from jazz
1: time Jones. Do you think the jazz need to go into full rebuild and try and get Cooper flag? Rumor is the jazz don't want to tear it all down. What would you do? Um, we actually, I wrote about this after our last episode, I think that rebuilds come in many different shapes and sizes and forms. Like, just because the Jazz aren't down there with the Detroit Pistons and the Spurs doesn't mean that they're not in a rebuild. Even though they can make the play-in tournament, they're still in a rebuild, and I don't think that you need to intentionally lose games to try and get a top-three pick because you have all these picks from Cleveland and from Minnesota and all these other places.
0: Uh, I thought there was a really interesting quote from Terry Rozier— talking about losing in Miami versus losing in Charlotte. And let me see if I can pull it up. This is in Sports Illustrated. This came out about a week ago, so I'm sorry if a lot of you have already said that uh, or have already read this. But Terry said it's the total opposite in Charlotte because after he got traded to Miami, they've lost like six in a row. They've been really bad lately, Mm -hmm. actually, Miami has, and he's not shooting well. But he said it's the total opposite. In Charlotte, you're kind of used to losing. It's kind of in the DNA. Over here, it's the total opposite. Nobody wants to lose. Nobody's fine with it. I really do believe that you can get too far away from winning, that you have to overhaul everything. And sometimes that even means, like, the ownership. Like, you have to get rid of everything to turn a loser into a winner. And I think it's really dangerous to dedicate multiple seasons to losing, which is why I think actually historically you look back, the best rebuilds that have involved tanking have been fluky one-offs where the Spurs tank for the second half of the season with David Robinson hurt and get Tim Duncan and come back and win a title. Yep. Like those are honestly traditionally the best rebuilds. It's funny. You can go back and say, well, yes, the the Cavaliers did make a finals with LeBron in his first run in Cleveland. They got swept by the Spurs. He goes to Miami. They're bad. They get these top picks in Kyrie Irving and Andrew Wiggins, and LeBron goes back and signs. They didn't have fluky down years. They lost LeBron. Like that's why they're bad. Yeah. But then they had this random ability to bring the superstar back. Like – the what the what the Hornets are doing right now, what Detroit is doing right now, what Houston did for four straight years of just like we're gonna scrape the bottom of the barrel for as long as we can until we get a superstar. Like that didn't work for Houston. Their yeah. best player right now is Alperin Alper Shangun. They acquired him on draft night in a trade with the Thunder. They drafted Jalen Green number two overall. Guys, Jalen Green stinks. Jalen Green might not be a good NBA player at all. Of course, he's gonna get you know traded to the Jazz now, and people be like <laughs> you said he stinks. Compared to the LeBrons of the world that we're talking about trying to get, yeah, Jalen Green is not in that conversation. He's a mid-level NBA player. So I think the more we see these teams lose for four or five years and how hard it is to get back into the winning conversation, I think we're going to see less of that. And, again, we talked about it, and, and I even wrote about it. We haven't, since, we haven't talked since uh, the Jazz lost to the Knicks. Knicks have done maybe the ideal rebuild in the NBA. Knicks have done an awesome rebuild. They don't have a true superstar. They never truly tanked. They traded Chris Porzingis, and got assets. They identif- They recognized what their identity was, and they have made a bunch of small trades here and there that have helped them. Trading for Josh Hart was a great move. You had to give up a first-round pick. You got a really good player back. Trading for OG Ananobi was a great move. You had to give up some good young picks. By the way, Emmanuel Quickly was drafted like 25th. Yeah. He's good. You hit on your draft picks. Look at the Knicks' rebuild. They never fully tanked. They have this ideal rebuild like we're talking about. They draft well in Emmanuel quickly. R.J. Barrett never hits in this 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 one year they did tank to get this number two overall pick. He never becomes a superstar, but they trade him for a guy who fits their identity. Yep. And you have Julius Randle, who's kind of a he's an all-star and he's an all-NBA player, but no one thinks like Julius Randle's one of the ten best players in the NBA. They signed Jalen Brunson, and some of that's because his dad was there, but they signed Jalen Brunson. He really helps. They signed Dante DiVincenzo, which is a really smart pickup that I think went under the radar at the time. And and they've won as a result of that without ever fully tanking. Yeah. So, again, rebuilding from the middle out I think is a new—might be the new fad in the NBA, and that's right where the Jazz are. They are in the middle, very firmly in the middle of the NBA right now. You have Lowry and Then it's about making those little trades with a pick. Maybe you still make a big swing, but you got to draft well. You got to hit on those pieces because they also become valuable trade pieces.
1: Yeah. The big tanks, honestly, if you look at the history of number one picks, we'll go from before 2020. Of course, you can't control injuries. A lot of these guys were affected by injuries, but like. None of these guys have been, like, the championship-winning guy for this organization. You have Zion Williamson, DeAndre Ayton, Markel Fultz, Ben Simmons, Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins. That's 2019 to 2014. None of those guys are LeBron, like we're talking about. None of those guys are a guy that comes in and is immediately, or after three years, leading you to championship appearances, you know? Granted, probably half of those guys went through injuries, but I think that tanking— But but
0: that's fine. You're right. You're gambling all this on a guy who, if he has any injuries, he can't win you a title. Yeah. That's how big the gamble is. There's there's just, you know, getting Cooper flag would be awesome. A, he might not end up being a great player. He looks like he's going to be really good. He may not be. And then, yeah, if your culture is totally shot by the time you get him, who cares? Yeah, exactly. I I think there's a real chance Victor Wimbanyama is not in in San Antonio in four seasons, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. But, like, if he hates it there and he's the best player in the NBA— He's gonna say, "I'm I'm done. Get yeah. me out of here. I hate you guys. I hate this. I don't want to be here anymore. You don't have the ability to build a contender around me. Or he gets injured, and it doesn't matter that you drafted him in the first place." Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty out on tanking, in all honesty, and that has evolved pretty quickly for me. That that change has evolved pretty quickly for me. Thank you guys for tuning into the Jazz Notes podcast. Next time
1: that we record, we will be after the trade deadline so we can talk about all the moves around the NBA and specifically with the Utah Jazz. Uh, make sure you check us out on all social media platforms at KSL Sports. And in the uh, description of all of these episodes, you can sign up for the Jazz Notes newsletter.
0: Appreciate you doing that. Yep, we'll be back next week. Follow us on Twitter at KSL at Ben's Hoops, and we'll talk to you next week.